The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to episode 16 of The Wizard Files, the special interview podcast series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us this time around is a man who is very enthusiastic about his time at the Guide to Comics on both the East and West Coast, more about that later, who contributed as a staff writer and editor before moving on to the world of screenwriting and animation. Please welcome to the show, Todd Casey. How you doing? Good, Adam. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for taking an interest in this uh, thing we all did forever ago. <laughs> yeah, it's just so cool to hear everybody's voice again. Some people I haven't seen and some people I never met. It's been really interesting. Now, before we get into the meat of this interview here, I did reach out to one of your old wizard cohorts, Chris Ward, the infamous Chris Ward, oh, yes. <laughs> who informed me that you at one point visited the set of the Halle Berry Catwoman movie and were trained in the use of a whip. So what can you tell us about that particular experience? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Chris, oh, man, he'll never let me live that down. It was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I went up to the set in Vancouver and Warner Brothers arranged for a couple of interviews, but also just more interesting stuff to write about. Kind of a Hunter S. Thompson put the journalist in the story, kind of a piece. But there was a guy whose name I've unfortunately forgotten. He had taught all kinds of people how to use whip over the years. He taught Halle Berry. And in this afternoon, he was going to teach me. And most of the time, I just remember being afraid that I was going to, like, put my own eye out. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have an Indiana Jones moment there from Last Crusade. Yeah, I want to say he was Australian, or maybe I just hear his voice that way in my head now, the whip trainer. I did manage to get the whip to crack once, and then there's, like, this other kind of over-the-head maneuver that I just, like, couldn't deploy. But he did some really cool stuff, like, he you know, made it crack and wrap around my wrists and, he, you know, knocked a leaf out of my hand and all this stuff. It was a big, like, trust exercise. It was, I had to put a lot of trust in a total stranger. But uh, I figured, you know, at least I'd get compensation if I got punched. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a pretty intense experience. So you and Halle Berry, there you go. You have something in common now. We do. And and Chris, there's a picture of me and the guy in the magazine. And Chris photoshopped all kinds of stuff into that picture over the years and will continue to send it to me. While part of group, I like make my desktop background in the office and like print it out or like yeah, all kind of, all kinds of stuff. Well, that is fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. Going back to the beginning then, how did comics enter your life to the point where you're going to end up working at a comics magazine? And, and uh, you know, what titles and creators were your favorites growing up? You know, the first way I became aware of comics was through the characters as toys, you know, as action figures. My brother is seven years older than me. So a lot of the stuff was kind of like came to me and it wasn't ever in a package so I didn't really know what it was but it was like the superpowers toys that were kind of you know DC Comics fourth world stuff that's now in the movies you know just Superman Batman but then like Darkseid and Mantis and Steppenwolf and more obscure characters and at the same time the Marvel Secret Wars toys so you know Magneto and Captain America and Spider-Man in both costumes but there wasn't a lot of regular TV content at the time. I think Spider-Man and his amazing friends is how I knew Spider-Man. The 70s show would like rerun sometimes. And the thing that like really grabbed me was this one episode, Pride of the X-Men 
cartoon. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, the pilot. Yeah, that didn't yeah, get picked like, up, yeah. Much like my whip trainer, Wolverine, is also Australian for some reason. <laughs> that, like, I just thought was super cool, and my brother was reading X-Men already, and he would sort of tell me about the characters or, like, you know, sort of the mythos, um, and I think convinced me they lived in Massachusetts because that was one of the places we went on vacation to to see relatives, so I, I didn't know they were really from New York. But I think my first comic was probably... was a Amazing Spider-Man 337. I remember this. This, you know, this Revenge of the Sinister Six or Return of the Sinister Six. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man's like tiny on the cover, and there's all these villains around him pointing down. I think it's Eric Larson. Right. Yeah. And I got that from like a stationery store, and it's you know the part of a six-part thing, and then that you know led me to be like, well, I need to know how this story began. Like, what are the other parts? And they didn't have those. But my brother had been into comics, so I was able to go to comic stores and. There's this store dollars and cents in our town that was like a baseball card shop that started selling comics. And when I was 12, I got a job there. Oh, cool. Yeah, like a lot of kids in my town worked when they were really young for whatever reason. Uh, there was like a bagel shop people worked at. And then I worked at this comic shop. And before me, Deadpool comics writer Jerry Duggan worked there. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, like seven years before me. I guess he was in my brother's year. So I'm pretty sure that he worked there also. But yeah, I worked there Wednesdays and Saturdays. So that's when I got to really see like the full breadth of comics. So an image launched, the death of Superman happened. You know, McFarlane and was my was my dude because his name was Todd. And I was very into art and Spider-Man. And I thought he drew Spider-Man super cool. And yeah, I was very much more into the artist. And I kind of wanted to be an artist. And my art sort of stopped progressing around the time I started working at the store. Probably, you know, I could shade a circle, maybe. Uh, I never really got past that. But yeah, I was a huge Spider-Man fan. And then the death of Superman and Nightfall got me into Superman, Batman. And like everyone else, I kind of fell off in high school. I wasn't reading stuff much. But the Sam Raimi Spider-Man kind of pulled me back into it. Dollars and Cents was long gone, but there's a store called Joker's Child in Fairlawn. And I would go there and buy comics. And in, in college, I kept up. But there wasn't a store in this Virginia town my school was in. It was like 30 minutes away. So I would just kind of go there, accumulate some books, keep them in my car because I lived in a packed dorm. <laughs> <laughs> Drive to my grandmother's an hour away once a month to read them in the recliner. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like a good time. I read Wizard when I worked at the comic store, but that's also, I read it. A lot in that time after the Raimi Spider-Man because there was more movie stuff happening. And I literally would read it cover to cover because like I just didn't. It was like a joy to read comics and you get through them pretty quick. They're not like a long read, but you could make a full magazine last a long time. So I read like everything. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned Wizard there that mentioned the, the Raimi Spider-Man film. So, yeah, we'll get into this a little bit more detail later on. But was that. Uh, being involved in film production and storytelling itself always an ambition of yours when you were young? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I did like play a lot of imaginary games, like playing with toys and action figures and stuff. And I guess that was like a sort of storytelling I didn't consider that I was always doing. But I didn't write fictional stories. I majored in American studies and history in college. I interned at like an investment bank. I interned at a public defender. You wanted to be respectable. We get it. Yeah. I grew up outside of New York City. You know, it was like a town where people commuted into New York City a lot for work. And it's just like, oh, there's these tall buildings and you have to go work in one of them at some point in your life, I guess. Doing some miscellaneous business type job. But 
I had ambitions towards writing, but I imagined writing like history books, essentially, not like textbooks, but sort of like, you know, MK Ultra in the 60s, you know, or whatever. Like that kind of stuff I thought would be cool, like those sort of journalistic history books. That was my ambition in college. Now, the first mention that we found of you, because ultimately, you know, your your path here, you're thinking about writing those books, you end up at Wizard somehow, and we found you in the masthead with issue number 139, where you're listed as a research assistant. So very curious, what circumstances led you then to being hired at Wizard away from those big tall buildings? I had finished school early because I took a lot of like community college classes in the summer. And so I finished like a semester earlier than most people. And I thought I was going to go to more school. And my brother was like, you know, just take time off and like do something like fun or interesting first. So I decided I would try to apply for some kind of job in comics because I liked that. And I was like, I could do that for a bit and then like do whatever. So I applied to DC and Marvel and Wizard. I actually think I applied some first for internships and didn't hear back, but I finished school in December and after New Year's, I got a call from Joe Yanarella, like asking me to come in and interview for this research job. And I think I started like working there before I would have been back to school for my final semester. It was really weird. <laughs> like I went from like finishing school in December to like suddenly having a job like January like 4th. And in research, I think other people have talked about it. You know, it's this sort of like this art gathering, uh, you know, for the design team. And I was, of course, interested in writing. And they had mentioned that that, you know, is a, is a position where you have an opportunity to do freelance writing. And so even though I had no idea what I was really supposed to be doing with the job, that's how I got into it. And it was like, since I lived near New York, you know, like DC and Marvel would have been logical commutes. And then Wizard turned out to be like pretty far from where (laughs) I was living with my parents. I was pretty far from them. So I moved in to my friend's house with his mom while him and another friend that lived there were still at school because they hadn't finished yet. And that was a little closer. So yeah, I had a weird kind of existence for a bit as I started out. Did she give you his room? It's like, yeah, you take Joe's room. He's not here. Both of these guys, by the way, also worked at Wizard. (laughs) (laughs) Chad worked in the warehouse and like he was, you know, we used to go to dollars and cents together. And then, although he's not in the masthead, I don't think they put the warehouse people in, I'm not sure. And then Andrew Reedman ended up doing ad stuff. And I lived in his room while he was at school. If it makes you feel any better, at one point, when my parents got divorced, my dad rented a room from an old man, you know, an old widowed guy. And when he died, the kids just said, well, you know, they like my dad. They're like, you can stay there, you know, while we figure out what we're going to do. So then when I went to college, I just moved in with my dad and I just lived in a dead guy's house. All his walls was all his family pictures. All his stuff was still there. Like we didn't change anything. Like, Yeah, at least I had like this sort of semi-guest-ish room that was usually occupied by a different transient than me. <laughs> but it was definitely odd to, like, yeah, be in his house. <laughs> now, uh, just a few issues later, in number 146, you had already been promoted to staff writer with the name Todd Biscuits Casey. That was your name <laughs> appearing in the masthead. Is there a story behind that nickname? Was there, like, what was the process of getting promoted and what was going on as you appeared there? I'm not really sure what, I don't know if Pat did those or not, but occasionally they would put in 
like a sort of Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, like middle right. you know, name for everybody in quotes. I'm not sure where that came from. So th- that wasn't what you brought with you. That wasn't given to you and they didn't call you biscuits around the office. Yeah, Andy Serwin called me Spider for some reason. <laughs> One of the first things I had to do as a research assistant was dress as the Wizard Bunny. Oh. So I think if there's a, I think I wore the black Spider-Man costume and the Wizard Bunny head, and that's in one of those. Cool. Um, I remember sending that picture to my friends at school and being like, "This is what I do now," and they were like, <laughs> "Heck, is your job?" <laughs> and I also remember the look of sort of pity that. Jody Westhoff gave me when putting on the bunny helmet, knowing how foul and never been cleaned it was inside. <laughs> I don't think that that thing got dry cleaned. Now, uh, interestingly enough, your first byline that we could find, at least, was the announcement of Supreme Power, a Hyperion story, as they were kind of relaunching that universe. And besides that Marvel project, though, was there any particularly big news in comics when you broke into the actual staff writer position? Do you recall some of those early assignments? We all had different companies to cover, and I covered Dark Horse, Indie Comics, and Image. And a lot of the big news was Marvel and DC. So unless there was something like really big, like I think the BPRD book was launching and then that was something that was like merited early news stuff. But I, I think I rarely wrote news stories. At least that's my recollection. <laughs> I do remember as a sort of freelancer from research, I might have written price guides sidebars and I don't know that those were credited or not, but it's sort of like, you know, the best blah, blah, blah covers or these various Hulk stories or whatever it is. And I'd know that the first big feature that I recall doing was a profile of Brian Vaughn, who had also not been profiled or written about to a great degree. And he was very humble and like, are you sure you want to write a story about me? (laughs) And I was like, look, I've never done this either. So uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be dumb. So, So this was before Why the Last Man was like touted as the greatest thing ever in Wizard for years and years? Well, I think it had... Ben, it, it was out at that time, and I think Ex Machina was out, and a few other things, and he was a big star on the rise. But, like, usually the profiles, you know, were about big Marvel DC people, and I guess he was really a big image person. You know, he was doing, like, his own stuff. And then, so that kind of made it significant. And, like, who else was profiling comic book writers, <laughs> right, at that time? For you, then, as you're, you know, again, the, we know the staff writer position was very coveted by many. Were there specific perks that you noticed, or just in general, working at Wizard, what was the greatest part for you? To me, there were a, a ton of perks, because I had worked at these other jobs, like, a, where I had to wear, you know, clothes that you have to dry clean. And like, you know, you go from an office that's like completely like the most office office and then go to a place where there's like a South Park pinball machine and like portraits of superheroes everywhere. And like there's junk, you know, it's like somebody's bedroom in places like there's just crud laying around and nobody's wearing button ups on the editorial floor and you can wear a hooded sweatshirt every day. And that stuff was a huge perk to me or working with people that like, you know, I had like a ton in common with Uh, we could like talk about comics I could borrow comics from the library you know i was able to read miracle man you know which was like impossible to get back then and just different stuff that i had missed out on i to that point had only ever been on like a a little prop plane like i'd never really been on a plane so getting to fly to wizard world chicago was like a huge deal for me and i hadn't you know been that far uh off the east coast 
and just the fun of being a staff writer is that, like, that was my highest aspiration at the magazine was staff writer <laughs> because I just like the idea of like talking to people on the phone and then just putting on headphones and writing. Speaking of which, then, so O'Brien came on the star on the rise, but was there anybody that was maybe higher up, you know, on most people's lists that to you stood out as you started making those calls, whether it was awkward sometimes or just you were starstruck and excited? Like, who were some of your top comics pros to interact with? You know, I interact with a lot of, like, just uh, PR people from those studios and things that I liked a whole lot. But we had to do these things called writer's notes. I don't know if anybody had mentioned this before, but you had to do writer's notes and convention notes. So every Friday you would kind of compile a bullet pointed list of uh, sort of things you'd learn or where things were going with companies or, you know, anything that could potentially lead to interesting stories. And this was sent up to like Joe and Pat and Matt. And it was like, you know, kind of off the record. You could list if things were off the record. And that gave them like a, a nice sort of aggregate view of everything that was going on. So a lot of times I would just kind of call people randomly to like try to enrich my writer's notes with something more significant that might be going on. And over time there, like not initially, but I got to know Jeff Loeb and Jeff Johns really well. So I, I think like, in like the last six months I was there, I interviewed Loeb like every single month because like, <laughs> I was the Aspen comics contact. So, and he was working with Michael Turner, who I also got to know and Steve Niles, I profiled and like, you know, kind of ended up being friendly with him when I moved out here along with the other folks who lived here. Uh, probably one of the weirder people to talk to that I liked talking to was, uh, Jim Steranko. Oh, old school. Okay. Yeah. What was he like? So we would get like our regular monthly assignments, but people would also have these like evergreen features that would take a lot longer to write and you'd sort of always be working on it in the background and then maybe at times with something. And, you know, maybe not. It was like the stuff that I think a lot of people like remember most about the magazine, you know, like, you know, the retrospectives on someone's career or, you know, the Bill Finger uh, profile, which had stood out to me before I worked there. As just like these kind of cool pieces of comic history. And I wish a lot of this stuff was archived because, you know, I think there's a lot of like important material. If anyone ever wants to go back, a lot of these people have passed away. But Steranko, I had the, the task of profiling and I couldn't really reach out to him directly, but he would call the office, refuse to give his name to the reception. <laughs> She'd be like, there's a man who says he wants to talk to you and he won't tell me who it is. Like, should I put him through? And I was like, I, I guess. And I thought it was like, you know, a prank from Chris Ward or something. And he'd be like, Casey, it's Steranko. And then, like, I'm, like, fumbling for the recorder, you know, like, <laughs> calling to tell me where the ransom is. And I have to trace the call, like, oh, you know, and then I start recording. And then I try to have questions, but he would just tell me a story and then basically hang up. And, like, he would sometimes email me stories. <laughs> and, like, there were just weird things about his life, but I couldn't seem to get him in for, like, an actual interview. But at random points, I would get these snippets and um, eventually I did interview him in person at um, a convention in San Francisco. It was actually like in a hotel room. I don't remember if it was mine or his, but it was late at night and he was like wearing like a full white linen suit, sunglasses, and he had a pompadour and like he's shuffling a deck of cards with one hand. And like if you're writing this type of thing, all that stuff is like awesome. Like you want the people you're writing about to just be like as weird and like, you know, just <laughs> like quirky as possible. Yeah. Possible. Cause it will make this all like so much more interesting. And so at that point I, yeah, I interviewed him, you know, at length and stuff. And that was a lot of fun, but it was always interesting to get a call from him. It's just, you never know what's coming. 
Yeah, I mean, that. it sounds like he felt like he was still in the world of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, he had written it, He, I live this, you know, like, I am Nick Fury. <laughs> and much like the Brian Bond, there was a kind of an angle to the Brian Bond feature that he had done kind of real-life research for some of these things or worked stuff from his life into some of the stories. And then that was also kind of a thing with Steranko. You know, Mr. Miracle being like an escape artist and Steranko is an escape artist and had these crazy stories, you know, and he would tell me stuff about like making guns out of pipes and like making tomato soup out of hot water and ketchup packets, which is not tomato soup. But <laughs> uh, just like really weird stuff that was so interesting. And that was like one of my favorite things to write. And I, I also wrote a feature that Joe Yanarella had kind of like initiated about Dave Cockrum, you know, who's artist on Giant Size X-Men. Right, and- yeah superheroes and designed these costumes for like storm nightcrawler legion of superhero characters i can't name but like <laughs> all these characters who at the time were in x-men movies and he was essentially dying in the veterans hospital in new york and joe wanted to kind of write about the idea that like this guy doesn't have any sort of coverage or anything for the legacy that he created that continues to make money and so that was like a really interesting thing for me to write just that like felt like oh this is like a thing i could use to get like a job writing journalism in other magazines. You know? yeah. This is like a significant, like, like real, like important thing. And, you know, there was like money raised and, and all this sort of thing. So that and the Steranko were like a lot of fun and felt like very rich and like the Cochran particular, like an important sort of thing, I guess. Now it's interesting, you know, there's another celebrity that you might have interacted with in your time at Wizard, and that was the big cheese himself. And so, Todd, it's time that we ask, Garib Seamus, Cool or fool? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I think that sort of baked into the idea of being a, like, you have to be a fool to start a comic magazine <laughs> with your friends and then add conventions and then try to start an ultimate fighting league and do whatever else, right? Like, it's sort of foolishness is built into like big business adventures, some of which failed spectacularly and, and some worked really well for a long time. And are the reason why I'm friends with a lot of people I'm friends with and, and have probably whatever I have today. So I think there's like a foolhardy nature built into that. Although I also had kind of thought of this one anecdote that I will leave to the audience to decide, because I think you could interpret this one of two ways. But it was at a convention, uh, San Diego, going into like the Hard Rock Hotel with Garib, someone else that wasn't a part of Wizard that we were having a meeting with. I don't remember. And Frank Miller is coming out of the Hard Rock. You know, listeners surely know the relationship, the history. Yeah. And like, we're all talking and Frank Miller comes out and Garib just reaches out and he's like, hey, Frank, good to see you. And like shakes his hand and like Frank Miller like looks at him and, you know, and they carry on and, and Garib turns to like the guy we're with and he's like, we go way back. And I was like, yeah, you do. <laughs> That could either be interpreted as cool or fool, depending on like what you think was happening. But uh, I just always thought that that just always struck me as very funny. And we did end up covering Sin City, the movie, a bunch. I very much appreciate your take on that. I think that is one of the more unique answers we've certainly gotten uh, to that question. So and I'm curious to know, you know, uh, we haven't mentioned a whole lot of your crew at this time that you were working with. You know, obviously we've collected a lot of stories regarding the office hijinks and convention stories and things like that, but do you have anything incriminating about your former coworkers that you would like to put on the record here? <laughs> 
Yeah, just Chris pranked me a lot. <laughs> we, we haven't heard about Chris the prankster uh, outside of that particular whip photo shopping uh, stuff. What else did he like to do to you? All kinds of stuff in like my desk drawers. He like flyered my car with like random comics we had gotten for free. He was the first person to ever do the trick to me where you screen capture someone's desktop and then open it as like a picture and make it the whole desktop so it's <laughs> anything that's a great prank but yeah mostly we just kind of i think had a good time you know i just have memories of like going and eating lunch together at the palisades mall <laughs> and just like having a lot of fun at the conventions because i never traveled that far so it was like my first time seeing the west coast i you know wouldn't have made it to la or san francisco or san diego or like warm in the winter places so i just had a lot of a good time traveling with everybody there was convention joe i don't know if anybody mentioned no let's hear about convention joe as Joe, you know, he was like the boss. He wasn't the comic geek. When you wrote those big personality profiles, he tended to be your editor. And he was like the guy that taught me, you know, like setting the scene. And like, you know, he wasn't necessarily for like the pun intro, you know, like the more like those features, you know, he was he was the editor of and were I think he wore like a button up, but he wore jeans. But then at conventions, he's just sort of like cut loose and was like party guy and like just suddenly not like a full on like maniac. But you're like, oh, you're not like <laughs> like buttoned up, you know, like very direct and like let's deadlines everything boss. And like he, you know, could just like drink an astronomical amount and be functional and she moves with everyone and, and kind of party and whatever. And it was like a, a secret identity that was known to everyone who had conventioned besides me. But yeah, I think everyone had a little bit of a different energy on conventions. You know, it's like more excitement. We're all together. It's like a camping trip, you know, and everything's sort of free. <laughs> the alcohol, the hotel room and all that. So even though we're working, it was still sort of like a vacation for me. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just realizing now, if it was never done in the pages of the magazine, and maybe we will find it someday, but that Joe Yanarella connected somehow to a gag involving Why the Last Man. It just feels like, you know, who else has a name that starts with a Y, you know? So like, just feels like there had to be some something to work with there so anyway i'm just throwing that out there maybe he ended out <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's like we're not going with that so but speaking of the west coast there what were the circumstances then that led you to move to los angeles and become a freelancer you know circa 2004 i visited the set of constantine in like december of 2003 maybe but i had never been to the west coast at this point i hadn't been to san diego for the convention i had never been somewhere where it was warm in the winter and we were having like a really rough snowy winter and that kind of just like instantly sold me on the west coast the director francis lawrence got sick and they postponed a day of shooting and warner brothers paid for the travel changes so i was able to stay in LA with this like free day. And you hung around with Shia LaBeouf and you guys are just buddy, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, he invited me out here. Uh, but uh, Matt was my editor for the entertainment stuff. And he's like, well, like go, you know, meet my buddy, Jeff Johns, who's a writer. And I hadn't met Jeff. I wasn't as big of a DC guy, but I knew everyone really loved like his books. And I thought like Titans was amazing. So I went to go have dinner with him. I got like crazy lost and was probably two hours late. And 
he was unfazed by that, just working away and showed me, you know, like he's so excited about everything he's working on and like showing me stuff. And like at that time, he shared this little bungalow house with Jeff Loeb as an office. So they didn't live there, but they used like the bedrooms as offices and like the living rooms, meeting room and all this kind of thing. And that like blew my mind. I was like, you're using a house for a different purpose. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like the Jeff cave, but two yeah. weird spellings of Jeff for both of those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <I'm> like, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I thought that was like such a cool life. And then we had dinner, we were talking and I was like, Oh, like, I'd love to like live out here. And he's like, Oh, how soon would you want to move out here? And I was like, I don't know if I got a job. And then I was out here shortly after with Matt to, I was going to kind of take over for Matt as the entertainment editor and meet all of the various contacts at all the studios and go around. So we had this big trip of doing all that. And then we had dinner with uh, Jeff Johns and met uh, Alan Heinberg, who was writing on the OC. I had not yet started writing comics, but was like a big fan. And then a couple of like the film people that we dealt with for the magazine. And at that dinner, I met Jeff's wife at the time, Anissa, also. And then at that dinner, Jeff was like, hey, like I sold a pilot to Fox and I'm going to need an assistant. If it gets picked up, would you want to come work for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds awesome. Wow. Uh, and then his show didn't get picked up, but this sort of idea was planted in my head. And March of that year, there was a wizard convention in Long Beach. And I was with Matt and Anissa, who worked at Cartoon Network. And she mentioned needing an assistant. And Matt was like, oh, yeah, like Todd. And I had already sort of been like vetted through Jeff. And then I was like, OK, yeah, I'll try Cartoon Network. Like I was just trying anything to get out here. Right. And it turned out like the main boss of the department, Sam Register, was like a reader of Wizard and really liked it. And had even once I started working there, tried to implement like a wizard minute thing into like Toonami as like a sort of one minute oh. sort of thing and part of Toonami at Cartoon Network. But I still kind of freelanced when I lived here. Mel Kylo became the entertainment editor and I moved out at the same time as Matt and Doug and Tom Root and Mike Fasolo, who I lived with. Actually, I moved out three months later, but we came to look for places at the same time. So I rented a place with Mike Fasolo that I didn't live in for three months. But yeah, it was weird. I flew to Los Angeles like four times in a month for various reasons. And I basically come here on the weekends after work to do job interviews. Tell me about this. That's obviously you're there. You said you're moving into freelance, but then at a certain point you become a West Coast editor of the magazine. Did Wizard have a West Coast office at that point? Sure made it look that way. <laughs> yeah. That was part of the idea, I think. You know, they had a West Coast ad salesperson. Jim McLaughlin had been a in West Coast freelancer. And, you know, I think he occasionally provided writer's notes also. I and mean, he would do stories and stuff. And then he, I think, became involved with the CBLDF and just didn't have the bandwidth to do that kind of stuff anymore. But it started to make sense to have someone on the West Coast, I guess. And at the time, yeah, I had been freelancing a bunch for them and wasn't really otherwise working. And the West Coast editor job was like mostly about brokering the film movie covers and and the coverage that would go with it and doing any big stuff that you would want to send an in-person, you know, a reporter for, right? So I wasn't necessarily doing set visits. I think that, I think that Ricky Purden also was like one of the entertainment editors that I worked with, but I wasn't necessarily doing set visits, but I would do interviews. I think I still did some of the Sin City stuff and some of the Watchmen stuff. And then in-person interviews with like comic creators that lived out here. But yeah, it was mostly about like 
brokering the covers and I once had to like go to Warner Brothers to like pick out a Watchmen cover thing and it was like I think there was like 10 like a 10 minute window or a 20 minute window where it just would have we would have just missed the deadline to get it. You know, it was like the thing is at the printer. They've printed whatever else. So I wasn't like the greatest West Coast editor of all time. But um, yeah, it was mostly like that and having someone out here. And there was a West Coast ad salesperson, like I said, and Garab occasionally came out for meetings. And I think I went to meetings with him. Although I don't quite remember what we did. But I got to do fun stuff, too, because if I just felt like, you know, like I really loved Grant Morrison and. I already knew Jeff, so I like pitched a feature where we would just kind of like talk about their favorite comics and went to a comic store with David Lindelof and Brian Vaughn and like just sort of like features that I thought would be fun. Well, let's let's talk about this because I know like you were saying, obviously we talked about you went to see the Constantine, you went to Catwoman, you know, you're here on the Watchmen set. So in all your time visiting these sets and seeing these comic book movies get made, for you, what was the most like jaw-dropping or what was your take on all the adaptations that were coming out? Were you personally excited by it all? I loved that, that all that stuff was becoming more popular, you know, because like reading comics and even working at the store when I was a kid was sort of clandestine. Like only a few people from my school, which was a few blocks from the comic store, ever came in. And there weren't a lot of people to talk to about comics, you know, so the magazine was like a good way to talk to people about comics that worked there. But once the movies came out, and started to enter into pop culture and now it's like a huge mainstream thing and everyone knows all these characters that used to just be like incredibly obscure to know even for comic book fans and i really liked that i think going to see x-men 2 with the wizard and marvel offices in new york a special screening was like a huge moment for me of just feeling like oh my god like this is just like that cartoon i saw when i was a kid but it's real <laughs> and from the the sort of like hollywood of it all going i wasn't a huge hellblazer reader prior to covering the movie so i didn't have like any of the reasons people might have been upset that he wasn't british and that sort of thing but definitely interviewing keanu reeves was just like a crazy experience because he was so nice and everyone on the crew like was so cool and everything and it was someone that i had seen in movies you know since i was like a kid and speed was the first r-rated movie i saw in the theater and i think bill and ted's is the first movie i saw at a sleepover and it was just very like a surreal experience that's yeah. sort of the magic of la as a place to like go live one other publication that you became involved in towards the the latter days of wizard was wizard edge magazine so what can you tell us how did wizard edge differ from the main wizard publication and what did you add during your stint as an editor on two issues or so well i had taken over for casey Sayas on secret stash which was like a indie calm in the back pages that I think Sean Collins and Alejandro Bono wrote after I did. I'm not sure who else did, maybe Dave Paji, but like it was, yeah, the indie comics thing. And then I was editor of Wizard Edge with Jesse Tom. Jesse Thompson was really like my editor on it. And I guess I was sort of an editor on it. And we had to do this together because he was Secret Stash editor. But I think that the, the what Jesse and I kind of thought it was, <laughs> was like, it's going to be like all indie comics and like, cool, like Secret Stash is a whole magazine and we can like finally promote all these things that were only in the sidebar. And then, but like a real part of the impetus maybe more turned out to be like, oh, maybe we can sell these other kind of ads or something. Because that Jesse and I got to go to SPX, Small Press Expo. Maybe that's in it. Whatever one is in Baltimore, Jesse and I went there together on a trip. 
and indie comics people did not love Wizard for all the right reasons. Ah. <laughs> not necessarily excited to see us there, uh, rightfully so. But then I remember it sort of being like, oh, like, you know, also like see it, you know, mention to them about advertising and the magazine, which we're like, no, we're not doing that. Um, and then it's just sort of weird, you know, like on the cover, you know, you're like, oh, indie comics icon, Optimus Prime. The exactly. Or Conan or whoever. Yeah. yeah. And then because it's sort of like, well, this still has to sell. And then it's like, well, the people, it's sort of like a weird bait and switch. Then I don't know. It felt like weird to me because then it's like, like, I think there's like a Frank Cho, like typical sort of flumptuous cover. And I don't know, selling the what you have to put on the cover to sell it. And like, is that going to get the right people to buy it? And would it be better to do a big, you know, jam piece so the indie characters are in it? I have no idea. But the thought behind it for us was um, on the editorial side, certainly was just really trying to t- spend more than two pages talking about all these great comics. And what Tom Palmer had done all those years. Yeah. Trying to get people yeah. to pay attention to indie comics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, on one hand you can make a case that like, yeah, you kind of like use Optimus Prime and Snake Eyes as the, the sugar to lure them in. And then they open it up and they're like, Oh wow. Like this top 25, I've never heard of these and maybe I'll pick some up. So, you know, maybe there's a, a good logic to it. Um, or maybe indie people would see that and be like, ugh. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, it's, it sounds like, you know, it's like punk rock wizard, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah D- DIY wizard, man. And then it's like, yeah, you got these, these, uh, corporate characters on the cover. But yeah, so it's interesting that the perspective that they took with that. Well, at the wizard conventions, we also had a wizard edge booth confusingly like with i think with copies that we like maybe didn't give away or something i don't remember but that i do recall being stationed at the wizard edge booth during a lot of conventions and it was sort of meant to like i don't know solicit people to put stuff in the magazine or whatever i got a lot of indie comics out of it i got to read a lot of stuff i might not have gotten to read i got to take a fun trip with jesse (laughs) but uh yeah i'm not sure that it turned out to be like what it should have been. Well, that's what I was wondering. Was there a success story from Wizard Edge? Do you know of a book or a creator that got a highlight there and then went on to bigger and better things? No one ever. <laughs> so maybe a couple, a couple uh, of those top twenty-five comics might have moved off the shelves. I'm not sure. Hopefully, I mean, I hope that. I think that sometimes you know, secret stash could make a difference. Like certainly, people like. I mean, Craig Thompson's like super nice. Uh, and we wrote about blankets and he did a little inked piece and blankets for me and they sent me a hardcover and stuff. And so presumably it, it helped blankets in some way. Not that it needed our help. It's a fantastic book. But like the people, you know, who recovered were certainly like very appreciative of it and excited to be a part of it so yeah hopefully it hopefully it helps yeah i think my big break came in a, an issue of wizard edge i'm pretty sure uh, that's, <laughs> that's where people really knew my name so now you are the first todd to get a question that i feel like i should have been asking all along and will pose to all future guests who have something to reveal that possibly my standard questions haven't yet opened the door to so todd what question am i not asking asking that needs to be asked about your time at wizard i would maybe ask people like what are some of the stupidest things you can remember happening or doing <laughs> just like kind of like a harmless idiocy that took place a lot you know what what would you place in that category that you yourself participated in i mean like the ludicrousness of some of the the setting of it all, like how remote this building was, to give you an idea, like there was, it was told to me that like one of the warehouse people would like bow hunt like deer off the loading dock. <laughs> 
like a raccoon got into the office and got into the research closet where all the like statues and DVDs were like during work. I think, I know, I think Chris Ward was there and my friend Chad in the warehouse and you know, this bow hunter like wrangled the thing and took it outside. And, you know, before my time, there was like a pie fight in the warehouse that maybe somebody talked about. Wow, no, I haven't heard about that one. I wasn't there for it. So hopefully somebody that you talked to in the future was. But I think that was something that Pat organized. It's like, let's have a pie fight, you know, <laughs> and and just like, yeah, the the, the goofiness of, of hanging out, you know, like we're all so young, you know, it's like just out of college getting to all have hotel rooms and an open tab at a bar with a bunch of your like nerd friends. But I think a lot of us like forge lasting friendships and things and it ends up helping future career in a way. Like I would be curious to see how many people would trace like where they are, how they got to where they are because of working at Wizard, you know, mm-hmm. you know, certainly for like the robot chicken gang, you know, for me, just like meeting like these right people and coming out here and fans of Wizard. And then, you know, when I worked at I continued to work at Warner, I worked at Warner Bros. Animation and like I knew so much about all the characters from working at the magazine, even if I didn't read the comics. And then Jeff Loeb hired me to work at Marvel and I knew Jeff Loeb from Wizard. And like I got hired at Disney based on sketches I wrote with like for Ben Morris and Ryan Panagos to Alex Kropanak animated for Marvel What the, you know, like and I knew all them from Wizard. And like those were the writing samples that people at Disney responded to more than the other stuff I had done. And I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for those guys. So it's like very strange in how many ways it ultimately like led to this path, you know, where I am. Yeah. Let, let's talk about a little bit of that. Cause yeah, you've obviously, you've been a writer, you've been involved in Transformers, Batman, the Brave of the Bold, Thundercats, Tales of the TMNT. I mean, these are major properties. Uh, is, is there a particular project for you that, again, you say Wizard opened the door there, but is there one that was uh, maybe a little bit more fun because you had one of your Wizard partners there involved or just something for you that it's like, oh yeah, this is like a personal favorite and here I am. I got to pitch it. They liked it. I'm in. Certainly like the, the Marvel, what the stuff that, um, which is like, you know, it's stop motion animated with Marvel characters, you know, like a certain broad personalities assigned to them. That Alex Kropanak kind of self-taught animator just made and they're on YouTube. And I thought that was a lot of fun. John Gutierrez voices and wrote some like it was like a, a sort of family affair for Wizard. We had a good time doing that. But writing on Batman Brave and the Bold was like probably the, because we really, really drew from the comics a lot and getting to go back into that stuff was a lot of fun. I think, you know, the demon was like one of the first episodes I wrote and Ryan Panagos, like a big demon fan. So I think I called him and I'm like, tell me everything you know about Etrigan. And, <laughs> and that was like fun to be able to like tell people like, you know, what I was working on and have it be exciting. And the, uh, yeah, a lot of the, like the, Things I learned, you know, from writing for, I wrote freelance for Toy Fair, just seeing the toys and things ends up becoming relevant to stuff like working on Transformers or Thundercats. Yeah, well, and while we're on the topic, let me turn it around on you. If someone from Wizard were to call you, which comic or character are you the expert on that people know, ah, Todd's that guy? Oh, boy. These days, I'm not sure that uh, any of them wouldn't know more than me <laughs> at the time i tended to like a lot of like psychedelic like weird kind of characters you know like the grant morrison stuff i liked a lot so maybe someone would ask me about that he was someone i didn't get to talk to a lot 
did interview him, he turned out to be a Brave and the Bold fan. So I gave him DVDs, and that made me very happy. Awesome. It's like enough for me. Like I certainly wouldn't know more X-Men than Ben Morris, right? <laughs> and that was <laughs> one of my favorite things. I think Alex probably has me beat on Spider-Man, which I also knew well. And Alex came with me to interview Stan Lee, which was also a lot of fun. So I was oh, gonna- wow. You know, as a magazine, you have to be prepared if someone significant is going to pass with an obituary. And that we started to prepare like 15 years before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. TJ Deitch just told us about that. And I was just like, that is crazy. Yeah, I had begun assembling work for the Stanley profile and stuff. But it was cool. Yeah, we got to like meet him and that was a lot of fun. But yeah, I don't know that I would be the expert on a... a whole lot. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let me ask you, so getting back to your screenwriting career and your buddies at Wizard, you know, Chris Ward mentioned to us way back when that you guys had an in-joke about Krampus before this European Christmas demon was really widely known, which led you uh, to co-writing, do I have that right, the movie Krampus? So Chris Ward at some point, I think it's in 2011, sent out like a t-shirt that had Krampus on it. I didn't, I just didn't really know the joke yet. I saw the design and I was like, what the heck is this? I think I tried to like buy it, <laughs> but it was sold out or whatever. But I looked up stuff about Krampus that night. And then I went to hang out with Mike Doherty, who had directed Trick or Treat and all these things. And I was like, have you ever heard of this like thing, Krampus? And he's like, that sounds like crazy. And like, we started to kind of concoct this like movie idea and then didn't do a ton with it for a while. And then eventually kind of like ramped up and really gave it a shot. But the guys had like a Krampus Twitter and all this stuff. I don't know how they originally found out about it, but I certainly found out about it from Chris sending this thing. And they had had this like Krampus, like Christmas and all known about it. And Oh, wait, no, Chris wrote a thing about Krampus for Topless Robot. Oh. Uh, Krampus, that would come up. Uh, Rob Ricken, uh, Anime Insider guy, was like, running mm-hmm. in working there and so chris wrote this article that was like kind of all these facts and it's like the most insane thing to read from like a comedy level right i'm actually pretty sure that's where i first learned about krampus also was on topless robot so i didn't know that chris ward introduced me to krampus also yeah i'm pretty sure that he wrote that yeah i think back in 2011 if you were to search it you would get that would be the first hit (laughs) (laughs) so did he get a special thanks in the credits He got a special thanks from me. (laughs) (laughs) Took him to the Palisades Mall and got him uh, some Sbarros or something? I gave him a Red Arrow uh, Wizard exclusive and uh, Krampus Krampus one half. Uh, I guess I gave him the Wizard thanks, which is like, here's swag. (laughs) <laughs> that's how it works yeah and by the way we, we got to talk to your buddy chad about the warehouse one of these days if he is uh someone we can reach out to i'm just very curious <laughs> i want to know what's going on out there but let's get into this here so uh speaking of swag do you have any mementos or swag that you kept from your time at wizard i do have a lot of art when i worked in research like over the, over time like you know, I acquired more from people just like giving me stuff. But when I worked in research, part of the job was to like return the art. So if you commissioned a piece, they weren't doing it digitally. They were like actually drawing it, FedExing it to an anchor who inked it, sent it to us to scan and all this. So part of the job was FedExing this stuff back. And some people just like didn't want it or for whatever reason, I'm not sure why. Maybe they didn't have art dealers yet. But uh when David Finch was exclusive to Top Cow, we commissioned him to do this piece that was an homage to a, I think, Sopranos season three poster with like everyone posed on a pier. And he replaced all Sopranos characters with villains. So it's like 
Joker and Harley Quinn and Kingpin and all these like big villains at the time. And when I tried to return it to him, he's like, oh, you can keep it. And I was wow. like, like me or like the magazine. He's like, you. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, David Finch is the nicest person I've ever got. So I, I had that like framed and stuff. And it's like a really killer piece. And, but when, you know, you would get art for birthdays and stuff. I got like somebody, the office gave me an alias page from the, the comic and, I think I have a Powers page, and they commissioned an Eric Powell Goon Hellboy drawing when I left that I have. Steranko gave me, like, a cool print that he had done. Steve Niles gave me a bunch of, like, Ben Templesmith art, not from 30 Days of Night, but from one of the follow-up books. You know, like, I held on to all this stuff. I have a lot of... And I had just, like, weird art that was, like, to opening features and stuff. By the way, I'm just imagining Starenko. It's like you go into a stall in some Italian restaurant, and you close the door of the stall, and there it is, just, like, his art was taped up there for you. It's like, this one's for you, Todd. <laughs> yeah, the, the keys to a bus locker and, yeah. and all that. <laughs> taped up behind the toilet yeah so speaking of which though so you mentioned you know you got that hellboy commission as you were leaving so what can you tell us about the final days of wizard magazine as you experienced it where were you at and what was the word that started coming through to you from the east coast to the west coast what did you start hearing about it what did you notice about the changes and how it ultimately ended up uh, well certainly like you know over years they had like those kind of firing fridays and there was fewer conventions and you know the magazine went to uh i don't know what you call it stapled instead of bound and you know it, it became it was from this big thing with a warehouse and this two-story building in congress new york and then it all got condensed into this new york office that i lived on the west coast but i would visit sometimes and go there i think mike cotton and justin acklin and dan riley were there and the office sort of was like a place that you would imagine people like selling penny stocks and like a boiler room kind of atmosphere. <laughs> that was like my read of it. You know, it, it kind of felt like the, the end was nigh because it got, you know, shorter. The magazine was getting shorter and skinnier and like things were changing and more things were being attempted to, you know, go more mainstream. And I think Scott Gramley was there for a while. But uh, yeah, the, the last couple I remember just being like really thin issues. And I think it went to a format where it was basically like the whole magazine was like a list or something. Like it was like just like 24 things. And then, yeah, things eventually shuttered. I might have stopped becoming the West. I might have stopped being the West Coast editor by that point because of like a job conflict by the time it really officially ended. But I think it was, you know, all, all attempts were made. I know Mike Cotton was really trying to find various ways to, you know, get it to be a digital thing on an iPad with sort of interactive stuff. But I guess the, the ad sales the, uh, certainly just weren't there for it. Yeah, that's interesting. TJ actually just sent me two of those PDF issues, yeah, from later down the line. I was like, wow, that that was the last gasp right there. PDF wizard. <laughs> yeah. Now, in your mind, what is the legacy of Wizard as a former reader, then as an actual employee, and as someone who, you know, was participating on so many levels, saw it take uh, so many different directions? What What is the legacy of Wizard in your mind? For me, it was a place before there was, like, internet forums really that it sort of felt like there was a conversation happening about comics and by reading it I was part of that working in the store it was like more of a baseball card type place there wasn't like big debates about whether you know Hulk or Thor went in a fight <laughs> so, so like that was kind of fun like and I lived in places where there's you know I didn't have friends who read it read comics so like pre-internet I think it was like important for that it might not have been like the best commentary in the world or whatever but it was it was something and you know later I did go on 
internet forums and stuff. And I think that was the time maybe people didn't need it as much. Certainly it brought a lot of like-minded people together, many of whom are still in touch or collaborated on, you know, projects and continue to work together. So I think it, it bonded a lot of us. The conventions, it brought conventions to places like Philadelphia or, you know, in, in Texas, there was shows maybe where there hadn't been big shows before. So fans could meet each other. So I think some of that stuff was good. There's a lot of like, if you know, if going back and looking through it, like a lot of it's probably like unreadable for me. I mean, you've been going back through, but there is stuff that I would kind of wish would be archived just because it is like some of these people have interviewed are no longer alive. You know, like I don't know how relevant some of this stuff might be later, given how big of a deal the movies are and all that. And like, you know, what the creators had to say at the time about what they were doing might be relevant. And it's not really online anywhere. You know, you can't find those articles. So hopefully some of the key stuff gets scanned. Well, we'll see what we can do there. We're actually going to be launching our official website soon enough so we may just make that a feature so there is an archive and uh, you know the former staff writers could suggest what they think needs to be up there so oh then you'll have a link and you could point people to it this is me this is me over here talking to Storenko <laughs> this is me over here doing the Dave Cochran piece here's me learning to use a whip guys that's <laughs> therapy <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, Todd, this was a, a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Just curious, if people want to find some of your current projects, what can they look forward to? did a lot of stuff for Netflix recently, and for superhero or comic fans, wrote some episodes of Hilda in season two, but Hilda's a comic adaptation. Um, and then there's a show called Kid Cosmic on Netflix from Craig McCracken, the Powerpuff Girls creator. So it's like a different kind of take on superpowers and i worked on that a bit and that i think comic fans might enjoy that as well and thanks for bringing us all on to reminisce about this thing that's probably you know mostly <laughs> important to just us but who knows i hope a lot of people get a kick out of it i have fun listening to everybody's interviews and we really enjoyed hearing your stories todd thank you so much for being a part of the wizard files there's another one in the books thank you very much for listening and if you are enjoying this behind the scenes look at wizard magazine then please tell your friends share it on social media if you want all the latest updates be sure to follow wizards the podcast guide to comics on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics of course if you are one of these people who brought Wizard Magazine to the masses with the entertainment that we all craved, then why don't you reach out to us, wizardscomicspod at gmail.com. Let's set up a date and time to get together and hear what you have to say about that experience. Of course, if you're looking for more content from Wizards, go on over to patreon.com forward slash wizardscomics and boy, do we have a whole bunch of exclusive videos. The 90s Super Cinema Podcast. If you join our $7 Big Cheese tier. You'll get a chance to have a live geek group chat with us every month. We have some great conversations over there. It's a very fun community that continues to grow. But until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.